welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. When I was a little girl, the 4th of July was one of my absolute favorite holidays. My whole family would get excited. There were fireworks, flags all across the neighborhood, sparklers, my favorite, and barbecues. I would put on my brownie uniform and march in our neighborhood parade in Portage, Michigan, feeling fully and completely American. Although on some level, I knew I wasn't a citizen at the time. I was convinced that by participating and being part of the community in the culture, well, that it was the same. For years, I embraced the belief, what science journalist Shankar Vedantam would call a useful delusion. This is the title of his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. And one of these useful delusions he holds is religion. But unlike Richard Dawkins, whose best-selling book, The God Delusion, wanted us to abandon religion as an outdated lie, Shankar Vedantam sees belief as something bigger in ourselves, is useful to keeping us alive. He writes, if self-deception is functional, then it will endure, regardless of all the bestsellers that criticize it. As science journalists go, Vedantam is a rock star. His very popular radio program, The Hidden Brain, is carried on over 250 public radio stations and is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Shankar Vedantam, welcome to Inspired. Thank you so much for having me, Ambreen. I'm really delighted to be here. What and how do you define a delusion? So very simply, I think of a delusion as being something that is an invention of the human mind. Um, So something that exists primarily in the human mind, is produced by the human mind, is what I call a delusion, as opposed to something that is actually out there that the human mind is merely perceiving. There are very serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that can produce, you know, people being literally detached from reality. They're hearing voices. They're seeing things. These are very serious disorders. And I don't mean for a second that my book is speaking about uh, delusions at the level of psychosis, at the level of psychiatric illness. I'm speaking about what happens to all of us on a routine level. They're delusions that are designed in some ways to get us to behave in a certain fashion. This is what I call a useful delusion. So our brains in some ways are designed to misperceive reality or to add layers on top of reality in order to guide us to certain conclusions that at least in our evolutionary past have proven functional for our ancestors. What drew you to this subject? I'm struck because you are essentially making the argument for, well, believing the lies we tell ourselves. I have to say, Ambreen, that this is a book that I did not expect that I would write. And if you had you know, known me five years ago, 10 years ago, you would not have guessed that I would have written a book like this because I, I think of myself as being a card-carrying rationalist. I'm a logical person. I'm a deep believer in science. I'm a, I've been a science journalist for almost all my life. Uh, and so to write a book that basically calls into question the efficacy of logic and reason is, a, is sort of a surprising thing for me. 
Academy. And and the genesis for, for it really was a number of things that happened over the years, but mostly it was following the science and the logic uh, and the, the research papers that started to come out over the last 20 or 30 years that have painted a picture that shows that in many cases, uh, logic and reason are often not the best ways to accomplish the goals of logic and reason. So even if you want a world that's governed by science and governed by facts and governed by rationality, it's important to understand the terrain, um, the emotional terrain on which conversations unfold and to sort of think about the role of self-deception in our daily lives. You know, that's a really provocative idea for those who embrace and who think of themselves as, quote unquote, enlightened in, you know, followers of reason and rationality and who reject often traditions that can feel mired in superstition mm-hmm. to come to that realization that that logic, reason. And I'm going to throw another word in there, f- just throwing facts and mm-hmm. data out at people is is not necessarily the most effective way to move forward. That's right. I mean, at the heart of my book, I think it's an argument about which is more important. Is it important to be right or is it important to be effective? Uh, and this and this argument sort of shows up in lots of different domains, but I think that's at the core of the book. The, the reason we have brains is that our brains are designed to help us adapt to the world and to survive, to pass on our genes to the to the next generation. So the brain has a very functional purpose to it. And it turns out that if seeing reality accurately is functional, then our brains are perfectly willing and able to see reality accurately. But it turns out that if being functional, if getting to adaptation and survival is better accomplished by not seeing reality accurately, it turns out our brains are equally well-designed not to perceive reality accurately because our brains fundamentally are not in the truth business. They are in the business of what is functional to us, what helps us adapt, what helps us survive, what helps us pass on their ge- pass on our genes. So if you extrapolate that idea to all manner of different things, you start to see how reason and logic might in fact be very useful at intuiting what the right path is of what the goal is, but it might not always be the best way of actually getting there. Well, it begs this question when you say the distinction between the right path versus the effective path. The effective path makes me wonder, effective for what end? Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think in many ways uh, that you, you could define the ends in, in, in different ways. But at, at a very simple level, let's assume that you have um, – let, let's take two simple examples um, – The canonical example of what I call a useful delusion is a relationship between parents and children. Uh, You know, when my own daughter was born uh, 15 years ago, I not only had the sense that she was the most special child in the world, I had the sense that she was the most special child in the history of the world, that there had been no greater miracle (laughs) than the miracle that had unfolded, you know, before my eyes that day at the hospital. Now, when I stepped back and thought about it, I said, of course, this can't be true. Millions of parents cannot be simultaneously correct that their children are the most special children in the world. Logically, that's, that's impossible. But when you think about it a little more, you understand that this is a perfectly useful delusion to have, because I quickly realized upon becoming a new parent that parenting is really hard. It's time consuming. It's difficult. It's frustrating. You're often sleep deprived. It's exhausting. And it turns out the delusions that parents have about their children 
buffers them against the body blows that parenting lands on them. And in fact, all of us come from a long line of ancestors where parents had delusional beliefs about their children and therefore invested the time and effort to raise children properly. So what's effective here is ensuring the survival of the next generation. You can also think of effectiveness in an interpersonal level in all kinds of ways. So it doesn't have to be at this larger levels of genes and evolution. In our personal lives, for example, it turns out that when we believe that in our romantic lives that we are with people, we are with partners who are more good-looking or more intelligent or more beautiful or more empathetic or more kind than they really are, we often feel like we are in happier relationships. We are happier to be in those relationships. We are likely to be in more stable relationships. So the delusional beliefs that we have about our partners play a functional role in allowing us to be happy with those partners and in keeping us in those relationships. So again, when you ask what is and who decides what's effective, effectiveness can be decided by the individual. It can be decided by the genes. It can be decided by a collective group. Your story about the way you view your daughter, it makes me wonder if our delusions or our ideas that may in fact be delusional um, evolve themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they come from an evolutionary place in in the various constructs that you identify in the book, like our relationships in family, our relationships in community, our relationships in religious community – How did you, as you were doing this research, how did you see, did you see delusions themselves evolve? That's a great question. I think you're absolutely right, which is that the delusions that we have are likely to change and are influenced not just by our genes, but influenced by our cultures and what our cultures and the cultural norms around us prescribe for us. So the genes uh, inside our bodies are certainly a driver of our behavior, but so are the norms of the people around us and so are our individual personalities. And so there are lots of drivers of these of these norms and there are lots of sources in some ways of uh, delusional behavior. The, the fundamental point that I think... I'm I'm trying to make in the book is that, you know, many, many books and articles have been written about the dangers of self-deception and delusion, Um, and understandably so, and rightly so, because any of us can look at our lives or the lives of people in our communities or nations um, and and see how terrible delusions can be and how dangerous self-deceptions can be, that they can lead people and groups and nations to ruin. The, The contribution that I'm trying to make here is that in many ways we have overlooked the potential benefits of self-deception. I'm not necessarily making the argument that all delusions are good or that all evolutions of delusions are good, but I am making the case that in many domains of our lives, we're often overlooking the fact that self-deception might actually play a functional role. In your book, you have an entire chapter dedicated to religion and the association with religious identities. And you look specifically at some of the rituals that bind communities together. I want to ask you about that. What made you kind of feel the need to, frankly, include, you know, that particular focus? And then the second, why only one chapter, Shankar? (laughs) Why only one chapter? Yeah, you know, as I was thinking about some of the ideas for the book, uh, there were a number of books that came out in the last 10 years, you know, many of them written by um, scientists and, and other people who sometimes describe themselves as the new atheists, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Um, the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins was in some ways the one of the reasons I chose the term delusion for the, for the title of my book. So as opposed to the God Delusion, Useful Delusions makes the case that even if religious beliefs are based on on 
theories or ideas or stories that might not be factually verifiable, they might still provide value to our lives. Um, I think what I'm fascinated by is this is the sense that I think the many of the new atheists make the argument that if you can falsify the claims that religious people make, if you can falsify the stories that are in religious texts, that must mean that religion has no value whatsoever. It must mean that religion is useless, that it's worthless, or even at the extreme that it's actually dangerous and should be fought, that it's a delusion, that it should be destroyed. Uh, I think this is a fundamentally flawed way of thinking about religion. And it's a fundamentally flawed way for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and let me give you two. The first is, I think in, in our lives, there are all manner of stories that might not be verifiable, but that in fact have powerful effects on our lives. Um, all of us have had the experience of reading a great novel or watching a great movie. And, and you close the book or you emerge from the movie theater and there are tears running down your face because you've been so moved by the story. And let's say a rationalist walks up to you at that point and asks, you, why are you crying? And you say, well, I read this great story, this wonderful novel, and the characters were, you know, what happened was so sad, and I'm, I'm, I'm weeping because of, of what I read. And the rationalist asks you, well, are any of the characters real? And you say, no, it's a novel. They're all fictional. Were any of the events real? No, all of them were fictional. None of, none of it happened. And the rationalist says, isn't it absurd that you're crying over characters that do not exist and events that never happened? And you would tell the rationalist, you're missing the point of the novel. The point of the novel is not whether the facts actually happened, whether these things happened in a literal sense. The reason the novel is powerful, the reason the movie is powerful, is because the emotions that it generates within me are real. They're speaking to deep questions of the human heart. They're speaking to important ideas about personality. They're speaking to what makes me feel is important as a human being. Um, and in exactly the same way, I think there's a way of thinking about religious texts, even if you were to say that the religious texts are not based on things that are factual, I think there is great value that you can derive, emotional value you can derive from the stories that are in religious texts. The second argument, I think, in favor of religion that I think many of the new atheists have ignored is that it's worth asking why it is that so many across human history and across human cultures, religions have thrived in almost every human setting. What is it about the human mind that proves so fertile for religious beliefs? Now, the nature of the religious beliefs have changed. What the ancient Greeks and Romans believed might not be what you and I believe today. But the capacity to believe in the supernatural, the capacity to believe in God, the capacity to believe in an afterlife, these have been facets that have stayed with human societies for really thousands and thousands of years. And, and, and over the last 20 or 30 years, many social scientists have made the argument that it's more useful to think of religion as a really important social innovation, that separate from whether the truth claims of religions are true or not, religions perform very, very important social functions in our societies. They help regulate societies, they help establish norms in societies, and they help people coordinate and work with one another across large groups, allowing cooperation and, 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 and allyship so that people stand shoulder to shoulder against common threats and common enemies. So both of these, I think, are powerful arguments where even if religions, in fact, are based on stories that are untrue or unverifiable, you can easily, I think, make the argument that in our daily lives, they are deeply functional and deeply useful. Shankar, can you read an excerpt from that chapter about the usefulness of religion? The late University of Cambridge philosopher of science Peter Lipton used to call himself a religious atheist. One of his central contentions was a theme that has emerged repeatedly in the course of this book. 
Stories, metaphors, and symbols are central to the working of the brain, and they are essential to our well-being. Lipton told me that he was both a card-carrying rationalist and a religious believer. He said he squared the circle by seeing religious texts as akin to great novels or poems. Quote, Here I am in a synagogue on a Saturday morning, and I say the prayers and say all these things to God and engage with God, and yet I don't believe God exists, he said. Quote, As I'm saying that prayer, I recognize it as being a statement to God. I understand it literally, and it has meaning because of the human sentiments it expresses. I am standing saying this prayer that my ancestors said with feeling and intention. Those things are moving to me. What I'm saying is, maybe that is enough. That is Shankar Vedantam, reading from his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Coming up, he tackles a question that many are asking. Why we believe and buy into conspiracy theories. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, my guest, Shankar Vedantam, host of the radio show and popular podcast, Hidden Brain. We've been discussing his new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. In it, Vedantam explores the lies, big and small, that help us get through life. Let's get back to the conversation. ask you a question about the emergence and the rise of two trends, and if you see them related. Based on what you just described in the functional utility, the role that religious belief systems, and it's not simply sacred text, but religious lived experience, practices shared in community, have in building kind of a social cohesion and meaning making mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. people. 
we live in a time, and I know you're very, very well aware, that disaffiliation, mm-hmm. leaving organized yes. religion as at an all-time mm-hmm. high, particularly among our children's generation. Generation X, absolutely. But when you look at Generation Z and younger, the kind of ad- identity with religious uh, organizations, religious labels are, are extremely mm-hmm. tenuous. And At the same time, we see the rise in the adherence of kind of more people being drawn to conspiracy theories, to new social engaged movements that are not necessarily traditional in any sense, that that are mystifying. When you take a step back based on everything that you have read, the research that you have poured through, what do you make of those two trends? Do you see them as connected or disconnected? I do think that there are facets of the human mind that are uncomfortable with uncertainty. The, the human mind craves explanations for the things that we see. It craves pattern. It craves meaning. Uh, in, in the absence of meaning, in the absence of being able to understand why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, you know, suffering becomes significantly worse. And this is an old idea that's been explored by many people who've been through traumatic events. If you understand the why of what you're going through, it makes the what you're going through significantly easier to bear. So if you think the universe has no meaning, it has no purpose, that suffering is random, that it happens in a meaningless in a meaningless way, I suspect you're more likely to experience greater suffering because the human mind in some ways is designed to find meaninglessness aversive. Um, Multiple psychological experiments, for example, find that if you deprive people of a sense of control, of a sense of meaning, they will often try and impose meaning on the world. They will try and create meanings and systems and, and, and conclusions that do not actually exist. So when you give people, deprive people of a sense of control, for example, they're more likely to see uh, images in in random patterns, such as static on a television set, or they will look at the gyrations of the stock market and believe that they can see patterns in what's going on. So the experience of a lack of control produces in some ways a counter-reaction within the mind of trying to impose control on the world. Conspiracy theories in that sense are very much a psychological phenomenon. And in many cases, uh, even though conspiracy theories are very powerful and, and, and can often exert great, uh, great effects on societies and sometimes very harmful effects on societies, it is also the case that conspiracy theories tend to be the weapon of the weak. So who is the person who is likely to see, you know, a small cabal of people controlling everything, driving everything, shaping everything? It tends to be the people who in some ways don't feel a lot of control in their own lives, who feel like their own lives are unpredictable or chaotic. They are likely to be the ones drawn to a story that basically has a simple story of villains and heroes. Um, one of the one of the important um, calls to action in my book is that when we come by people who have such beliefs, uh, rationalists such as myself are often tempted to throw facts and evidence at people, to challenge them with argument, to shout them down and argue them down and, and basically say, you're an idiot for believing what you believe. And I have come to believe quite strongly that this is a mistake. That this is a, it's really a, it's, it's a mistake on two fronts. It's first of all, not effective to do because, you know, yelling at people rarely changes their mind about anything. And Second of all, it's really important, I think, to understand the psychological purposes that conspiracy theories serve. 
You know, as you're describing it, it makes me think of the chapter in your book about nationalism and about the kind of ideas that we have about what binds us together. And this this notion of polarized communities and the inability to talk to someone who ha- holds a different political view or who views the future differently you make a lot of appeals for empathy. Do you see empathy breaking through? I think, you know, when people actually try empathy and actually exercise empathy, they're often surprised to see how well it works. Um, You know, very often I think television and social media are not very good places to litigate the differences that people have between them. I think when ordinary people sit down, and especially when they break bread together, when their children go to the same schools or their children are playing a soccer game together, you're sitting down and seeing that you share something in common with this other person, you know, then your identity as a Republican and your identity as a Democrat or whatever other, you know, divide we're talking about, those divisions still exist, but those divisions now fall into a larger context. You're basically saying we're both parents. We're both parents of children who play soccer or we're both, you know, people who enjoy music or we're both people who enjoy sports. And you're seeing your disagreements in the context of a larger frame. And I think this is what happens when we have friendships, right? You don't agree with your friend on everything, but you don't come to your blow. You don't come to blows with your friend on issues on which you disagree. And why is that? The reason is that you have this larger context where you're basically starting from a position of empathy. Uh, I know it sort of sounds um, sort of very soft. Uh, It doesn't sound like it's sort of a hard-edged solution to basically say be empathetic, be compassionate. But again, look to your own life and ask yourself, how many times have you changed your mind on something because someone yelled at you? And how many times were you willing to at least consider the other side when the other side came to you with an extended hand, with an olive branch, with, with empathy and compassion? We talk often about echo chambers in media, but we live as a people oftentimes in pretty strong silos where we're not interacting and engaging with people who are different from I us. Think that's true. And I think, yeah, this this is a huge issue, I think, not just in the United States, but around the world, right? You would think that if anything would unite a country together and basically allow people to step beyond their political and partisan divisions, it would be a global pandemic that has caused such terrible harm in our country and around the world. And it is so sad to me to see that even in this, in this instance of this terrible disaster that has befallen all of us, so quickly we retreated into our camps where we pointed fingers. And we were so quick to say, you know, you are a fool for believing what you believe, or even worse, you're an evil person for believing what you believe. Uh, and, And even if that feels momentarily satisfying to do, if it feels satisfying to point a finger, it is so profoundly counterproductive in actually achieving the goals that we want. I think many people who believe in science would have to just look at the last year and ask themselves, how effective has it been to hector people about the science in actually achieving the goals of science? I just want to talk about political leadership and visions for what happens when you, when we self-segregate, when we identify just with our, as you're describing it, our tribes. How do those delusions that we hold on to that can be constructive and also destructive, how can those be used by political leaders? Social scientists sometimes talk about the proverbial, you know, anthropologist from Mars, somebody who comes from another planet. You know, what would they see? What would they notice? What would they observe? Um, I, I want to push that a step further. Imagine someone who has traveled from a different and distant galaxy to our little planet. So this person, you know, has come from many 
thousands of light years away, traveled across these vast realms of darkness and space and time, and then come to this tiny little blue planet in this obscure solar system in the corner of a nondescript galaxy in the universe. And it's a small planet that seems to be teeming with life. There are 8 million species of life on the planet. But there's one species, um, human beings, have somehow decided that they have the right to carve up this little planet that they that they that they live in into 190 different territories that they call nations and they believe so fervently in the integrity of the the lines that they have drawn uh, these uh, these inventions that they have come up with that they're willing to go to war with one another about the integrity of these of these lines and and not just fight one another but they're willing to destroy the entire planet with nuclear weapons if need be to protect the integrity of the lines that they have drawn. Now, surely this this visitor from a distant galaxy would look at this behavior and describe it as a profound delusion. They would just, they would say, you know, how is it that you have believed something so fervently that you're willing to destroy the one the one planet that sustains life, you know, in a thousand light years in any direction? Um, now, the reason this happens, of course, is because our minds are so vulnerable. And so capable of coming up with stories. And these stories can be both harmful but also beneficial. So the stories we tell about the nation state are potentially quite beneficial. So, for example, let's say there's a natural disaster in California. Somebody in New York might well say, what do I have in common with this person in California? We're not related. We've never met each other. We're never going to meet each other. But yet the fact that you feel that you're both Americans can prompt the person in New York to say, I need to help the person in California. Or the person in Texas says, I want to help the person in Minnesota. So the stories that nations tell about themselves, the the delusions, if you will, these inventions of the mind, which which are nations, serve a potentially very useful purpose because they allow large numbers of people to coordinate their behavior, cooperate with one another, stand together, defend one another, one another against common threats, you know, build great things together, great works of public infrastructure and so forth. The same delusions that produce all the good things that nation states do also produces all the bad things that nation states do. So nations have gone to war with one another uh, about the self-deceptions that are about nationalism. They've committed genocide in the name of in the name of nationalism. So here's where the the question of leadership comes in, and this goes back to the question you're asking about what is the role of political leadership here. What you want leaders to do in the situation is to call us to you know the better angels of our nature to draw on that phrase to basically say bring us together, think about what what we should do in the service of one another rather than use delusions to drive people apart or to drive wedges between people. Because the very same self-deceptions that can cause people to bind together, to hold together, to stand by one another, to be selfless and altruistic and generous toward one another, the very same capacities we have for self-deception that allow us to do those good things also allow us to form tribes and echo chambers and detest and hate one another and produce civil wars and conflicts and wars and genocide. And so I think the role of political leadership is incredibly important here because this is where skilled leadership says, here are the stories that we want to bring to the fore. Here are the stories that will bring out the best of ourselves. I'm curious, do you see a change in yourself 
when you sat down to write this and tackle this, would 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 Shankar Vedantam twenty five <laughs> years ago have written this book? I, I think Shankar Vedantam twenty five years ago would have been horrified by this book because I, I think I, <laughs> I, I I tended to have fairly fairly strong views about people who disagreed with me about logic and rationality, uh, and often would get find myself deeply upset and get angry with people who had views that I considered to be wrong or views that I considered to be crazy. And perhaps it's a sign of age and perhaps it's a sign of wisdom, but perhaps also it's a sign of having read and understood uh, more about how the mind works that I've come to have in many ways a more compassionate understanding both of myself and other people. Uh, for one thing, I've realized that, um, you know, when, when rationalists think about their, their views and think about how their views are different from people who are, quote unquote, non-rational or irrational, they're often operating from a position of what I think of as privilege. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. When you are not going through something really difficult, when you're not experiencing something difficult, it's very easy to look at the rationalizations that people make in those difficult situations and look at them with contempt. Uh, but you're doing so not because you're smarter or better or wiser. You're doing so merely because you don't happen to be in the foxhole with them, right? There's the old saying, there are no atheists in the foxhole. And, and, and the idea behind that is that when we are confronted by really difficult circumstances, our minds often gravitate to beliefs that can soothe us during difficult times. Now, some of us turn to religious beliefs. I know many people in my, in my own family this past year, this terrible year of the pandemic, who've become much more religious. And they become much more religious, especially because they feel they have very little control over things that are happening around them and the, and the world seems terrifying and religion offers a source of comfort and security. Um, for my own part, I've come up with rationalizations of my own and my rationalizations are not religious, but every point in the pandemic over the past year, I have convinced myself that liberation was four weeks away. So last March, last mm. April, last May, last June, any point during the pandemic you asked me, I would have told you, you know, the end of the pandemic is four weeks away. There's going to be something that happens and we're basically <laughs> going to be fine. Now, I knew in April and May and June and July, as I kept saying this, I knew this was a rationalization. So why did I do it? I did it because in some ways I was experiencing, perhaps in a small way, some of the horrors of the pandemic. And I was dealing with things that were outside my control. And my optimism that things would look up in, a, in four weeks' time was in some ways my brain coming up with an emotional defense system against something that was very hard to defend against. All of us do this in our mm -hmm. daily lives. And I think the, the deep insight that I've come by is that when we fail to do this, when we fail to come up with rationalizations that allow us to cope with our daily lives, yes, on the one hand, you might be seeing reality more accurately, but sadly and ironically, it might make you less functional. Some of the most provocative work looking at the realm of useful delusions comes when we look at people who have certain mental illnesses. For a long time, it was thought that people who had mental illnesses were seeing the world delusionally. People who are mentally healthy were seeing the world realistically. Of course, there are certain mental illnesses where this is the case, but serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia, people actually are experiencing actual delusions and actual hallucinations. But but more recently, over the last 20 or 30 years, studies have found that people with some forms of mental illness like depression might in fact be seeing the world more accurately than people who are quote-unquote mentally healthy. That That mental illness, that depression might not be seeing the world delusionally. It might mean seeing the world as it is, and that might be deeply depressing. And being mentally healthy might mean looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses. It might mean sort of reaching for optimistic delusions. Mm. Shankar Vedantam, thank you so much for joining. 
You've been listening to my conversation with Shankar Vedantam, science reporter extraordinaire. He's the host of Hidden Brain and author of Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Coming up, we explore the latest poll data about what Americans believe and don't believe about the 2020 elections and what it means. Stay with us. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this week, we've been talking about what we believe and why we believe things that are, well, not true. At the end of our conversation, Shankar Vedantam made this point. The very same self-deceptions that can cause people to bind together, to hold together, to stand by one another, to be selfless and altruistic and generous toward one another, the very same capacities we have for self-deception that allow us to do those good things also allow us to form tribes and echo chambers and detest and hate one another. And so I think the role of political leadership is incredibly important here because this is where skilled leadership says, here are the stories that we want to bring to the fore. Here are the stories that will bring out the best of ourselves. As Vedantam describes in greater detail in his book, Useful Delusions, what we believe is very much shaped by the leaders we trust. That point was underscored earlier this week when the self-described nonpartisan watchdog organization, the Democracy Fund's voter study group, released Crisis in Confidence. The report co-authors Robert Griffin and Maisha Kasem analyzed the national poll of 4,400 adults since the 2020 elections. And among the many findings, 60% of Americans believe the election did permanent harm to the nation. And among Trump voters, just 34% said they would accept Biden as a legitimate president. Is this surprising or normal? To learn more, I invited report co-author and political scientist Robert Griffin to shed some light. Robert, welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And Robert, before we get started, tell uh, our listeners where you are in the world, what organization you represent, and what you do for them. Sure. So I am the research director for the Democracy Fund Voter Study Group. And uh, the short version about us uh, is that we're a group of scholars, analysts, pollsters uh, who are trying to better understand the American electorate. So we do public opinion survey work. Um, we try to engage, I think, with some of the biggest narratives uh, about what's going on with the American public and try to shed light on those things so that people just have a sort of a shared reality to work from. Can I ask you to talk a little bit about that survey research? And what were some of the key findings? One of the things that we saw that's completely normal is that there are people who supported a losing candidate and people who supported a winning candidate. And we see their opinions diverge after the election about whether or not that election was conducted fairly and accurately. So the idea that people are uh, uh, sort of sour grapes, right, to, to put it one way, um, after election is not really that strange. The oddity of what we are going through now 
is, uh, I think, twofold. One is the intensity with which those opinions are held, right? So that we're seeing much higher levels post-election than we did in prior elections. I think the second piece of it that's really important here, and it goes beyond public opinion, but that whatever these negative attitudes that the public has, they are being reinforced, if not actively stoked, uh, by a political elites. In this case, uh, the former uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump, significant portions of the Republican Party, as well as members of the conservative media. It's not just that these attitudes existed, it's that now they're being supported at this high level. Because typically what happens is people have these negative emotions post-election, and what do you have? You have a concession speech. You have a process uh, in which the loser of that election, the party and the, the candidate themselves, make the motions uh, that they they'd sort of behave in conciliatory ways, both in terms of their, their actions as well as sort of their words. And that helps close the wounds after an election, right? Because every one of these elections creates uh, animosity to a certain degree. People don't like losing. Um, but, but really, again, what's, what's happening here that's different is not some radical change necessarily in the public, but it, it's, it's a difference of leadership. When you talk about the concession speech as a signaling to your supporters that we can accept the authenticity of the election and move forward, you're, it's also reinforcing in an implicit way the system. That's what I hear you saying. It's, it's, it reinforces that the system, the, de- the democratic processes itself, work. That didn't happen this year. No, no, it didn't. You know, it helps people to narrativize their own lives and the events that are happening around them. To have a a sitting president at that point, obviously now a former president, so actively violate those things, and not just sort of in the immediate aftermath of the election, but now eight months out, continuing to spread lies about this election, we don't have a lot of precedent for people doing this. And so we're, we're in a little bit in uncharted territory here, but at least so far, what we're seeing is eight months out, a lot of the polling numbers that you would ask people, do you think, you know, for example, is Joe Biden a legitimate president? we're still seeing really high numbers of Republicans say no, right? That, that he only won because of fraud, that he's in fact an illegitimate president. Um, and that's kind of a really worrying sign, I think, again, for American democracy. The thing that I worry about in some ways myself too, is I, I think a lot of people have in their heads that January 6th was uh, the zenith. You know, I, I hope it's the zenith. I hope that's as bad as it ever gets. But there's obviously room for it to get a lot worse, to be frank about it. When you talk about January 6th as a quote unquote zenith for one group, which group are you talking about? Dee? Are you talking about those who uh, see the threat to democracy or those who saw the threat to the elections? What does January 6th represent to the two different groups that, that you have looked at? I think on the one end of things, you have people who would be very concerned about the events of January 6th. And that actually includes a a pretty good chunk of American society, both Democrats and Republicans, right? Okay, well, is that the worst as it gets, right? Do we have examples uh, in other countries? Do we have examples of democratic decline elsewhere? What do those look like? Is January 6th as bad as it gets once we start referencing those data points? And, And the reality there is that January 6th is not as bad as it could get, as bad as it was. January 6th might well be sort of like the kickoff point for an era of instability or an era where now elections are going to be contested. That's not written in stone, right? But I think, you know, having a, having a democracy that's a bit more stable, where people have more trust in the system, it's an act of will. It's something that all of us sort of have to build together. At the beginning of your report, you say free and fair elections are the lifeblood of democracy. 
what are the signs for you that we are in need of a transfusion? And when are the signs that we are in cardiac arrest? Some of them are already happening. You've got political parties that instead of trying to win elections or trying to change the rules, that's typically a bad sign. It's already happening. I guess if it was happening at an even higher level uh, or more in more blatant ways, that would be bad. It would be a bad sign to me if the Democratic Party, frankly, were to pick up any of this fever itself. That is to say, if we were to have a future election that was legitimately lost by Democrats and they also sort of spiraled into a period of conspiracizing about this issue, that would be a very, very bad sign because then we would have two parties who are both engaged uh, in this type of behavior at a high level. So that would, that would be a real big danger sign. Um, continued violence um, at, at significant levels that are you know, political in nature, this would be a pretty big warning sign to me. Another piece of the puzzle here is how much influence does Donald Trump continue to have on the Republican Party? The reality is that he's sort of patient zero in some ways for a lot of these conspiracies around the election. Um, so to the degree that the Republican Party is not able to shake him off over the course of the next couple of years, um, it's a really bad sign for one of the two major political parties. Mm. As we speak, there are a number of bills being proposed in state legislatures that advocates describe as seeking to suppress voter turnout, especially among minorities and Democrats. What does your study tell us about the motivations behind these bills? Who supports them and why? I think on on the one end, you probably do have some state legislators around the country, uh, again, Republican state legislators who are are trying to pass these bills that are... um, to talk about it in broad strokes, trying to make it harder to vote and restrict access to the ballot. And um, some of these people are true believers. That is to say, they're hearing from the leader of their party and other portions of conservative media or uh, other portions of the Republican Party that the 2020 was an election where there was a significant amount of fraud and that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And this all happened because of a bunch of loosey-goosey election laws. I think there is another group of folks who want to potentially be responsive to Republican electorates in their state that they see picking up these beliefs at a really high rate. And they do that for all sorts of reasons, sometimes to actually be responsive. Maybe they're ambitious for um, you know, a higher office or something like that. They want to get in good with their constituencies. And I think there's yet a third thing, which is there is a relatively well-ingrained belief within the Republican Party that access to the ballot and higher turnout rates inherently favor Democratic candidates and the Democratic Party. Now, the, the evidence on that is actually pretty sparse. You know, we just had the highest turnout election in about 100 years, and 40,000 votes flipped the other way would have resulted in uh, a, a win for Donald Trump, right? That's how it would have played out in the Electoral College. So it's not inherently obvious to me. You know, when you describe the 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 demographics and you describe the alignment with the conservative Republican movement. When you say that, you're talking about the challenge of creating kind of a, a space for conversation to be able to interrogate some of the beliefs, interrogate some of the ideas in a way that's constructive. Am I am I reading or hearing you correctly or am I missing something? No, I think you're right. Every political party is a big tent, right? We talk about big tents and small tents, but the reality is just about every party is a big tent. So at the very least, what you might hope to see there, that there is some emergent coalition that within the Republican Party itself that might stand opposed 
uh, to the big lie, right? To the extent that we might hope um, there was some emergent coalition that might push back on this in a sustained manner. Um, it's not 100% clear that it exists. You talked about the elites, the political elites. What about other elites like religious leaders? I use the term elites pretty broadly. Um, you know, when I talk about that, I really mean people uh, who are, are thought of as being knowledgeable as sources of information that people can rely on and that they have a pretty big megaphone to speak from. Um, so, you know, when I think about people who are capable of being influential on the attitudes that people have, how they narrativize their own lives, both personally and politically, um, religious elites certainly would fall into that category, along with, again, political elites, obviously. Um, sitting presidents are a pretty big influence on uh, people's attitudes, uh, as well as media elites, right? Folks who, you know, you hear from on a potentially a, a daily basis about uh, about the news and sort of, you know, getting constant information sources about how to interpret events as they're occurring. What about people who are closer to us? We're talking about elites, but what voices do you feel like are ones that we ought to be tuning or listening into a little bit more? Do you feel that we're listening enough to voices that exert influence closer to people? Or is it most instructive to be tuning into the elites that are sitting perhaps at the top of that pyramid? I usually don't think about it from a utility standpoint. I'll be perfectly honest. But like, I, I usually think about it as just sort of an it is what it is kind of thing. Um, that it, it happens to be the case that the attitudes espoused by the president of the United States have a disproportionate impact on what everybody thinks. Um, and, and that happens for all sorts of reasons. Um, but, you know, as a general statement, if you were to say to me, should people be paying attention uh, to things that are a little bit closer to home? Um, I, I think that's probably a net positive at this point in American history. There's a couple of trends that exist in American politics right now. One of them is called uh, nationalization, right? So the old adage is that everything is local in politics. But the reality is that over time, we have seen elections becoming more and more correlated. Like that's to say the results of elections becoming more and more correlated with national results so that our, our politics itself has become more nationalized and less uh, affected by sort of local or state level uh, events or goings on. So in general, if, if you were to say, you know, would it be a positive thing for people to hone in a little bit more on the issues that are a little bit closer to home and sometimes even paying attention to, you know, the voices in their own community, uh, this would be a good thing. I don't know that I have, I don't, I don't know that I have a lot of faith in that just happening on its own, right? I usually have to say to myself, what's the mechanism? What's the thing that changes this? That maybe goes beyond one or two of your listeners, um, I don't know, potentially taking that advice to heart and, and sort of changing their mind about something. But is, what, is, what is a technological change or a societal change that shifts people en masse towards sort of upweighting those different concerns rather than just what's going on at the national level. Thank you, Robert Griffin, for joining me to talk about the most recent survey work that you've done with the Democracy Fund Group. Thank you for having me. This is a lovely conversation. Robert Griffin is the research director of the Democracy Fund's Voter Study Group. You can find a link to their poll crisis of confidence in this week's show notes on our website at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter and explore the archives. 
You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices and help us out. Leave a rating and a review. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.